Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. Last week, we kicked off this series called Make Us One with talking about unity. And we talked about the importance of, of, of the church as a whole being united and not having all the divisions and things. We, we, we talked about how that we're all part of the same kingdom. Whether we're under the same denominational branch or not, we're still serving the same Lord, the same Jesus. When we sing uh, this morning, churches around our county around our state some of them are singing from a hymnal some of them are singing from a screen some of them may even have the old little projector that you had to put the little slide sheet on and still projecting it on the wall but they're still singing about the Jesus and God that that we all serve and so uh, we are all together uh, serving one Lord one Savior and uh, you know trying to build one kingdom and that is the kingdom of God and so we talked about last week about focusing on the things that we have in common not the things that divide us and so today we're going to talk about one of those common things that every believer has. And, and really, it's a common practice in the area of our calling that is on our life. And it's, it's a called uh, the, the calling to be holy, the calling to be set apart for God's use. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says this, that whom God foreknew, he also predestined that they would be conformed into the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then there's other scriptures that talk about how God is holy, so we should be holy. And, and, and so when you look at that, you see that God's desire is, is that everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord, everyone who calls Jesus their Savior and and God their Father, that his desire is that every day they look more and more like Jesus. Now, there is a bunch of misunderstandings in things of what it takes to look like Jesus or, and everything. And, and, and there's a lot of, uh, of things when you get into holiness that is more of a weight or a barrier of all the thou shalt nots and all of those things that can weigh you down that equals holiness. But really the word holiness simply means this. It means set apart. It means set apart for God's purposes, set apart for God's use, set apart for God's will. And so when we look at this, we see that God's will for our life is that we look more like his son. But unfortunately, in the church world today, a lot of times we kind of hold that expectation for others, but we lower the expectation for ourselves. Like, we want other people to be up here at this standard, and how dare you, you know, disrespect, or how dare you lose your temper, how dare you say that, or act that way, or whatever. But then when it comes to us, like, we want to be judged on our intentions. Ouch. That one hurt a little bit. Like, we want to judge everybody else's actions, but we want to judge our intentions and we'll even say but but God knows my heart he knows that's not 
what I meant to say. He knows that's not how I meant it to. God knows my heart. And yes, he does know your heart. You know how God describes your heart? In Jeremiah 17, he described your heart. He says the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It is desperately sick. And who can understand it? Like God knows the condition of your heart. God knows that the condition of your heart is to wander away from his plans. The condition of your heart is to be selfish. The condition of your heart is to live for what feels good. The condition of your heart is to live the the path of least resistance. The condition of your heart is you want everybody to do good things to you without having to necessarily do things for other people. And so, yes, God knows the condition of our heart. He's not angry about the condition of our heart. He's not ready to rain down wrath because he looks at the condition of our heart and he sees deceitfulness, he sees selfishness, he sees ambition, he sees jealousy, he sees all of these things. Yet, he wants us to know what the condition of our heart is and not be distracted with the condition of the person who's sitting next to us. He wants us to begin to focus on understanding where we come short of the glory of God versus feeling like we have to be the Holy Ghost and point out where other people come short of the glory of God. Some of y'all got like y'all Holy Ghost Junior badge, like... Just like, sinner, sinner, that's wrong, that's wrong, shouldn't have said that. Oh, burn, baby, burn. I mean, it's like this whole level of judgment, but Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about the heart and everything, one of the things he says in Matthew chapter 7 is this. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And, And listen, people who are living in sin, they love this verse. Like, this is the verse that they absolutely can quote. They might not be able to quote anything else, but they can quote this one. The Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Well, yeah, that's true. But if you go on and you read the rest of the, the thing, right after he says this, phrase, this passage that we're getting ready to read, toward the end of Matthew 7, in the same conversation, he says, you can judge a tree by its fruit because a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. And I think there's a level of fruit inspection that we need to do that we need to be honest about what fruit is growing out of our heart. So he's not, he, he's not saying, don't judge. Don't look at what's going on in somebody else. He says, judge not or you would be judged for the way that you judge. Okay, so there's going to be a level of judgment that you're going to have to make. I'm going to have to look at Brooke's life and see if I see fruit coming out of her life, whether that's good fruit or bad fruit, I got to be able to see that whether I know if I want her up here leading worship or not. Like if she's just got a bunch of bad fruit and she's pure evil, I don't want her evilness flowing into the church. I don't want her pride and ambition and everything flowing into the church. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a level, because he didn't say judge you not unless you be, don't, don't judge at all, because the very next statement is, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of your measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Do you see what it, it goes on? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, but look, there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. 
How is it that you can point out what's wrong in everybody else? You know everything that your spouse did wrong and you list it every time you get into an argument, but you're not willing to own up to your own log that is hanging out of your own eye. He is not saying don't judge all at, at all. What he is saying is, look at this, you hypocrite, first take the, lo the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying, do an introspection first. Don't sit there and tell somebody else all the things that are wrong in their life when you have compromised and sin and everything in your life. Don't judge other people by their actions while you want to still be judged by your intentions. Get rid of the junk that is in your heart. God doesn't show you the junk that's in your heart to condemn you. God shows you the junk that's in your heart to conform you into the image of his son. And he shows you through his word where the things that are in our heart are wrong. This doesn't mean that we don't help other people out in their walk with God. Because then that goes against everything else in Scripture when it tells us that we're supposed to make disciples and we're supposed to teach people and we're supposed to correct people. We're supposed to be there with one another. Like there, there, There's so many other passages that go there. But the, what it is saying is when you are judging or when you are talking, first realize that you're not perfect and the same amount of grace that you want somebody to give to you, how about giving it to them? Stop looking for reasons to not worship together. Stop looking for reasons to disagree on things. Start evaluating what's in your heart. And when you see something that's in somebody's heart, don't be happy about it. It is a shame that there have been times when pastors and ministers have fallen into some area of sin and it's almost like other people in the church are like, yep, looky there, I told you that guy was a heretic. And like they get excited because a brother has fallen. But here's the thing, you have to understand that that brother has fallen, that that brings a, a, a smudge on the kingdom of God, that brings reproach on the kingdom of God, that brings reproach on the name of Jesus. How can we rejoice when the name of Jesus has been besmirched by somebody who has fallen? Y'all are not too fired up about this this morning. Galatians says, brothers and sisters, if a person is caught in wrongdoing, it, it doesn't say kick them out of the church. Like that's our first response a lot of times. Well, they sin, they gone. Good luck out there. One of the saddest things that I saw was when Ted Haggard and his sin was a great sin, and Ted Haggard was in a great position within the, the he was over the national evang, uh, evangelicals and all this stuff, was in a high position, was caught in some gross sin and, and things, but when he was, every person who was on his board resigned from his board and left him. Didn't want anything to do with him anymore. Do you really think that that's going to help Ted in his relationship with Jesus? 
Do you really think that that's the best option? But then on the other side, I've seen where pastors have fallen and there have been brothers who have came around them and supported them. And then a couple years later, you see them back in ministry doing more for the kingdom of God than ever before. Which one do you think is God's desire? He tells us if you see someone who is in this, that you who are spiritual should restore such a person with gentleness, not with judgment. As one looking out so that you are not tempted as well, bear one another's burdens and thereby you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what was the law of Christ? Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. This commandment is that you love your brother, that you love one another as you love yourself. We talked about that last week from John 13. That Jesus said the two greatest commandments was love God with all your heart, but love your, your neighbor as you love yourself. When we are willing to walk through people's messes, there is nothing more Christ-like that we can do than to come alongside them and try to gently restore them. And then he gives a warning because the one who thinks that uh, he is something, he is nothing and he deceives himself. Listen, there's some people who think that like since they got saved, they can't sin anymore. There's a whole doctrine that's called sinless perfection that once you're saved, you're no longer able to sin anymore. then why does Paul and Peter keep writing all these things about how you need to repent and you need to get up and you need to begin to walk and all this stuff? Listen, that type of process, like to judge other people and to be excited when they fell, that's pride. And pride always will lead to a fall of your own. And that's what he said. Be careful when you're, you're helping these people. You gently restore them. Don't start getting too high-minded like you're, you're all that and you got everything solved in your life. Because the very thing that took them out can end up taking you out if you're going to walk in pride. You know why? Because pride gives an open door to the enemy. And God says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I have made it my desire. Like, I realize I need some grace. Come on, do we have anybody else who needs a little bit of grace in their life? If you didn't raise your hand, I am assuming that you are perfect and you never sin. Or you just don't understand what grace is. I know I need some grace. And so if I need it, I'm going to give it. Why? Because you reap what you sow. If I give grace and love and mercy, then in my time when I need grace and love and mercy, guess what's going to come right back to me? Grace and love and mercy. And see, this is one of the biggest areas that we felt in the church because we have taught people to hide your sin. We have taught people, don't, don't say anything about your sin because if you say something about your sin, we're going to kick you out. We're going to pull you out. We're going to dismiss you. We're going to get rid of you. Like, we're going to judge you. We're going to condemn you. And so then, when we give an altar call, even though God is really dealing with them. And like, I watch. Sometimes, I told somebody one time, I was like, sometimes I wish, I, I, I fully understand what Paul means when he said, I beseech you or I urge you. Because that means like he's begging you. There are times when I get up here and preach and I watch y'all. Y'all are wiping the tears and the snot and the, everything like that the whole time. And then I'm like, listen, just bring that to the altar. And you're like, <clears throat> Do 
Why are we afraid to walk down here? Because the church has created a culture of judgment. That imperfection, we almost think like imperfection is strange. Like these other people that I'm sitting near every Sunday, they're not perfect. Like no, imperfection is all throughout here. It is what is completely normal. To want to stay in the imperfection is what is strange. When God says you can be free, when God says you can be healed, when God says I can rebuild it, when God says I can restore it, when God says I can make it better than it's ever been, you can have sleep. You don't have to have depression. You can have joy. You can have peace. You can have love. And it's all found just on the other side of confession. Why would we not move? We've created a culture where we feel like we can't confess something. Because if we confess something, that people might think something about us. And you know what this has led to? An unhealthy church. Because James said in James 5 verse 16, he says, if you will confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. See, you confess your sins to God and you're forgiven. But when you begin to confess your sin to a brother and sister, that's when God can bring healing into your sin. And he can heal the root of the problem so that you don't continue. See, we deal so much with the fruit. See, the teaching on holiness, the majority of the time, has been on just cutting off the negative fruit that's in your life. Listen, you can cut off the fruit all that you want, but if you don't get to the root of the issue and allow God to bring healing to the root of the issue, the fruit will continue to grow up back. It's going to keep coming. And it's no wonder, like, I do great for three months. I went to the altar and I prayed that one time, and then I was great. And then everything was good for about three months, and then all of a sudden it showed back up. Because you didn't get to the root. You dealt with holiness on the level of cutting off the fruit. The fruit shows what is coming from the root. That's why Jesus went into the whole explanation about a good tree is going to produce good fruit. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. If you keep seeing things that are coming out of jealousy and ambition and hatred and anger and unforgiveness and depression and suicidal thoughts and all of that, then you've got to begin to get to the root of what's really going on in the life so that you can see the fruit. We have to understand that there are processes in our walk with God. I'm going to give you three steps today that are steps that you see really in the Old Testament. You know, that's that part that a lot of people don't like to read through because there's a lot of stories that we don't understand and stuff. And a lot of churches today, it's just like, just read the New Testament and you'll be good. No, no, no. The Old Testament helps point to Jesus and show you the New Testament. And in fact, the Old Testament is what shows us a lot of things about what God wants to do in our life. The nation of Israel being the children of God is an example of what God wants to do in every believer's heart. The nation of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. He sends a deliverer. He brings them across the Red Sea. The enemy was defeated in the Red Sea. He brings them out to the wilderness. 
And, you, and, and then he's taking them to a promised land. And you can see steps and things that God wants to do. The Egypt representing sin and sin being our taskmaster and everything. And then the Red Sea representing the blood of Jesus and how the blood of Jesus was enough to destroy all of the enemies. That's why it says Pharaoh and all of his armies came. And it even says the phrase that all of them were destroyed, never to be seen again. Think about that. All of your sin, all of your past was destroyed in the blood of Jesus, never to be seen again. Do you see it? But if we don't look at it, we don't understand it. But that wasn't the end of it. They didn't just take them to the end of the Red Sea and they turn around and see Pharaoh and his army destroyed and be like, all right, let's camp out here. No, because he had a plan for them. The plan wasn't for them to camp by the Red Sea. The plan was for them to go into the promised land. And so I'm going to show you these three steps. The first one is this. is uh, Pull that up. The salvation, the three stages. The first one is deliverance from Egypt, which represents salvation. We just talked about that, about the blood of Jesus being applied and everything. The second step that we see in this is the wilderness or the testing. So when they got out of Egypt, how I many of you know they still had some Egyptian mindsets and bondage mindsets and slave mindsets that were in their life? So during the wilderness was the time when God was trying to get Egypt out of them. He was trying to get the mentality, the slave mentality out to where they could understand a son mentality. He was trying to get the, the, the bondage and the fear out. That's why he talks, you know, Paul writes about, you haven't received the spirit of fear again as to bondage, but you've received the spirit of sonship. You've received the spirit of adoption as the sonship. See, when you understand the Old Testament and this is a process of things, then you can begin to realize it in the New Testament. But here's the problem. In the church world today, we think that once we've passed through the Red Sea, that now all of a sudden everything's perfect. But I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I got up and I still had flesh. Anybody else? I still had thoughts that were not godly thoughts. I still had desires that were not godly desires. I love it that some people, they get up from salvation and like, it's all gone. Pastor Q, I'm jealous. Like, he gets saved and he never wants to do another drug, never wants to do anything again. Like, all those big, but you know what? Even though he was delivered from all those things, there were still mindsets and bondages and stuff that God still needed to bring him through. And it took place in the wilderness. This is a process that we know as sanctification. This is the process that we know of really being conformed into the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's beginning to get the, the worldly mentalities and mindsets and thought processes. It's beginning to get, how many times through, when they were in the wilderness did the children of Israel say, it was better off for us back in Egypt? Really, because you don't have meat, it was better off that your kids were being killed in the, the, the uh, Nile River and, and that you uh, were having to build bricks and you were under bondage and everything. It was really better off for you to be a slave in complete bondage and having your kids taken from you and have no personal freedom whatsoever just because you don't have meat. How I many you know that's a silly thought? But how many of us have had similar thoughts? It was a whole lot easier when I wasn't saved. 
really? The pain, the guilt, the shame, the things of sin over time and how it wore on us and everything, that, that was better than having to address a little issue that's going on in your life? You see, the enemy always wants to convince you to run back to Egypt. Because in the wilderness, things get tough. Trials start happening. Things get tested. You start seeing things you don't like in yourself. So verses, work through it. Let me run. Run back to Egypt thinking that it's going to be better back there. I'm going to tell you, the same taskmaster is there and it's not going to be any better. It'd actually be worse because you've had a taste of freedom and now you've had to go on back under complete bondage. But God was trying to show himself. He was trying to reveal himself of his ability to protect them, his ability to provide for them. He provided water from a rock. He provided manna that just showed up every morning while they were sleeping. Hey, while you're sleeping, I have the ability to feed you for the next day. And on the day before Sabbath, I have the ability to, while you're sleeping, feed you for the next two days. All you have to do is grab a jar and run out, put it in there. Ta-da! Now, who did more work? It really wasn't that much work. But yet God provided, God protected, God did all these things for them. But he didn't want them to stay in the wilderness. And there's too many Christians that when they get to the wilderness and they start seeing the things that they don't like, they want to run back to Egypt. But you have to realize that the wilderness is part of the process that God wants to do in your life. The dry times, the trial times, the things like that are things when God is bringing purity and God is showing you his provision and God is doing things in your life to show you who he is and what he can do in your life. Because he wants you to come to the third stage with a full understanding of the type of relationship that he has. And the third stage is this, the promised land. The promised land is the inheritance. This is what God had promised Abraham 440 years before they ever entered into it. This is what God promised Isaac. This is what God promised Jacob. I'm taking you to a place. I'm going to restore you to this place. Can I tell you something? The place that God is wanting to take us back to is the Garden of Eden where we had unbroken fellowship with God. where we could be in his presence, where there was no sin, there was no sickness. And that's ultimately the promised land. But can I tell you something? The promised land isn't just heaven one day. There's a promised land, a calling, a destiny, a purpose that God has for you while you were here on this earth. There is a fullness of life. Jesus said, I came to give life and life to the fullest or abundantly. There's a fullness of relationship where you know God is your father and you trust him that no matter what's going on around your life, your daddy's got it. He's got this. There's a level of covenant, but here's the thing with covenant is covenant is a two-way relationship. It's not a one-sided, you give me everything and I give nothing. We want the third stage without the second stage. We want to jump from freedom over into the promised land. But here's the reason why we can't do it. Because if we get in the promised land and we receive the level of blessing and everything that God has and wants to offer us, it will destroy us 
because we never worked on the process of sanctification and the issues that were going on in our heart. And God never intended that we do this alone. And if you go back to the thing, you remember, all right, so Moses dies. Joshua becomes the new leader. In Joshua chapter 1, God speaks to Joshua. And Moses had led two and a half of the tribes of Israel, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh had entered into their portion of the promised land of Canaan. And then they had to cross the Jordan River, and they had to go in and fight the Battle of Jericho. Everybody remember the Battle of Jericho? All that Reubenite, Gadite, and all that stuff. Y'all are like, what? I don't remember that. Jericho, yeah. Walls came tumbling down. I got you. Seven times around the city. I remember my Sunday school class. But before Jericho, God spoke to Joshua to talk to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Again, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh were already in their promised land. They had already seen the fulfillment of everything that God had promised them to do. But look at what God tells them, or God tells Joshua to tell them in Joshua chapter 1, verse 12. He says, But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua went and said, Remember the word that Moses said to your servant Moses, that he commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest, and he will give you this land. And so your wives and your little one and your livestock, they can remain in this land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan River. But you have to cross over ahead of your brothers in battle formation, all the valiant warriors. Why? So you can help them. And you go until, your, until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he has given you. And you shall possess the land that God is giving to them. And then you may return to your land and take possession of what Moses, the servant, God, uh, the servant of God, gave you beyond the Jordan River toward sunrise. In other words, listen, I know that things are going well in your life right now and you've got your land, but you can't stop here. Because there's not a half other tribes of Israel your brothers haven't entered in yet. So you don't get to camp here and just sing kumbaya and build big houses and just be rich and prosperous and wealthy and love on and everything. And again, part of the American church today, the ultimate goal is blessing and prosperity. No, 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 no. God said, Reubenites, Gadites, those that have already entered into the blessing and prosperity, you are not going to just camp out here and feel good about yourself. Your brothers haven't entered in yet, so you need to arm yourself up and get ready for war because we're going to go to battle until all of them have entered into the, their promised land and the land that I've given them. In other words, mature believer that God has blessed and you've went through all the wilderness and testing and you feel like you've got that, that oneness with God and you understand him as father and you're seeing the blessing of God in your life. It ain't time to sit up and build, sit back and, and camp out and feel good about how religious and holy you are. It's time to prepare for war. Because there are other brothers and sisters who have not found that same type of freedom, have not found that same type of deliverance, have not entered into that same type of blessing. And so now it's time to begin to fight for them. Well, how do I know when the battle's over? When they've all received the freedom. When they've all received healing. When they've all received deliverance. 
Listen, that, that's where sometimes churches get it wrong. They think once they've hurt, hit this certain le- mega church level and all this stuff, and, and they've got you know, millions of followers on Instagram, and they've got these books, and they've got everything, that the blessing of God is upon them, and so now they just sit back and enjoy the life that God's given them. No! That's where men fall. They fall when, like King David, they're looking upon the kingdom that they have and they start saying, wow, look how great this kingdom is. Oh, who's that woman? She looks good. Well, that's Uriah's wife. I don't care. I'm God's man. I'm the man of God in favor and God wants me to be blessed, right? Tell her to come on over and bless me. It's not the first person who saw a kingdom that they built, stood out on a deck and began to look at look, Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this kingdom that I've built, how great it is. God makes him crazy like an animal. He goes out and eats grass for seven years. This is who you are without me, Nebuchadnezzar. See, when we stop fighting, that's, that's one of the, the phrases with David's sin. It says, when the kings were supposed to be out to war, David was looking on his kingdom. This is the danger in thinking that the kingdom that we're building is our kingdom. It's because then we're like, look at all that I've done. And we forget who we were when God found us. That's why God doesn't want us to disengage. That's why God wants us to keep them. And can I tell you something? We see the exact same thing in the Great Commission. Let's look at Mark chapter 16. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The other part where you see the Great Commission is Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey the commandments. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of age. Pastor Brandon, how in the world do we see salvation, sanctification, and inheritance there? Well, the first part of it is it tells us that we're supposed to teach the gospel to people. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, right? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto what? Salvation. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So the first thing he tells them you got to do is listen, you got to go preach the good news. You got to go begin to share what Jesus has done. You can't be ashamed of your testimony and who you were. That is a story of the goodness of God and what he's done in your life. And if God can save someone as messed up as you, then he's got hope for them. I mean, this is the... So, don't be ashamed of your past. Embrace your past. And tell other people how God gave you a future in spite of your past. Not of a lowly servant who couldn't hold his head up and be around or anything like that, but as a son, he brought you back to the table. He even says in Psalms 23, 
that in the present, he makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, God, it doesn't even matter what level of attack is. God says, don't worry about all them. You, my son, you just come sit with me. That's the gospel. That's, that's what Jesus did to preach the gospel. The second thing was make disciples, right? Go preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them to obey the thing. Well, what is this? This is the process of sanctification. If I'm making a disciple, how did Jesus make disciples? When they were arguing over who was going to be first and greatest in the kingdom, he's like, no, 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 no. Y'all got this all wrong. Hold on, wait. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of God, don't go for the highest seat, but be the servant to them all. Oh, you want... The Gentiles and everything, they think that if you just say the right words that your prayers will get answered. But no, 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 you don't approach your father with just a bunch of jargon. You approach, you approach your father with our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. God, I want your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't know the things of God. He just called Peter Satan. If I sat there and called somebody out in front of a group of people and, and, and I said, Mickey, get thee behind me, Satan. He thinks I'm, I ain't going to this church no more. I'll show him. And I'll post it on Facebook and find somebody who has Instagram and have them post it and tear the whole thing down. Discipleship is a process of sanctification. Of realizing this thing ain't all about you. It's not about who sits at the right hand or the left hand. It's about the people that are lost. That's why Jesus told Luke 14, 15, I mean, he's constantly telling parables about going into the highways and hedges and compelling them to come in and everything and reaching people and stuff. He's trying to disciple them and teach them. And then the third aspect of it was, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of time. What is that? That's the covenant relationship. That's the inheritance. I'll always be with you. No matter where you go, no matter what's going on, I'm right there. You see the three stages represented in the Great Commission. Now here's the question. If holiness means to be set apart for the use of God, how well are we following through with His words with the Great Commission? Are we teaching the gospel or are you relying on me to teach the gospel? Because there's a lot of people that I don't know who don't need to hear a message that I preach here. They need to hear what God did in your life. They need to hear the good news of what God did in your life. Are you making disciples or are you waiting for this church to schedule a small group class so that you can be a disciple? I mean, we, we tell you all the time, listen, if you want to do a small group, you do a small group. In fact, we'll give you, we, we talked about last week. That if you want to do a small group, I will, we've got the curriculum for Until Unity, and we'll give you the book for Until Unity. All you have to do is walk out here and give us the names of the people who are in your small group, and we'll give you that amount of books. 
and give us the information and we'll give you the curriculum so that you can begin to make disciples. See, here's the thing about holiness is holiness isn't just about sins of commission. A lot of times holiness is about sins of omission. We focused on the commission part of don't do this, don't say this, don't drink this, don't look at this, don't. But how many Christians is this their church experience? Amen. Can you see that timer? Is he over his time yet? I mean, we're going, we're going long. Yeah, it's good. All right, let's go get something to eat. They're giving altar call. Come on, if we get out now, we'll beat everybody to the restaurants. Don't, don't sit around. We won't have to wait in line. When we know that the message was right here. But again, we've created the culture of not being willing to admit when we're wrong. We've created the culture before council culture was possible in the woke generation and everything like that. Cancel culture was in the church far before that. You sin, gone. So we pretend like we don't sin. I don't agree with what you said. I'm leaving the church. So pastors are afraid to preach the truth. You want to know why a lot of pastors preach the same messages just in a rotation? Because they're afraid if they deviate from that course that people won't come back. Because they want to do this. Did my Christian duty, went to church today. I can go on and live my life. Salvation, sanctification, and then you find the inheritance. You're not going to get to the true level of inheritance and covenant relationship with God without being willing to go through the sanctification. And in the process of sanctification, you're going to have to realize the things that God is showing you in your heart and versus ignoring them, you're going to have to deal with them. And the place that God desires that you deal with them is in your family, among your brothers and sisters. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. We love you and have a great day.